0: 20,000 feet up Breaking all the light. You're
1: listening to Feminist Killjoys, PhD, an hour of feminism, pop culture, and politics as discussed by two professional killjoys. I'm Rachel, and it's just me again. Melody is at a bike race this weekend, an all-day and night, weekend-long bike race um, that we will hopefully hear about uh, soon, uh, or you may have just heard about it last episode. It depends on when we air this. Um, But I promise very soon Melody and I will be back together again Um, In the meantime, uh, I had the opportunity to sit down with my friend and colleague, Timothy Alexiak. He's uh, a really awesome person and uh, has some really interesting thoughts on uh, listening. We'll talk more about what he means by that in the interview. Um, Really quick, you can, uh, as always, find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, our Feminist Killjoys PhD mixtape on Spotify. And... We are uh, certainly hopeful that more folks will listen to us on iTunes, subscribe, and leave a review. Um, that's so helpful to us, and we would be so appreciative that if you um, enjoy our podcast to, to do that. It's an easy, free way to support us, and we'd be so appreciative. So without further ado, uh, we are going to get to the interview with Timothy.
0: to get a job.
1: So we are here, or I am here, with Timothy Alexiak, uh, my dear friend and colleague, and Timothy uh, is also a professor. Uh, Timothy, do you want to talk about sort of your research interests, where you teach if you feel like sharing? You don't have to. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll start there.
2: Hi. Um, thank you for having me on the show. I love the podcast, so it's really yeah. exciting to talk about it, um, or talk about things with, with you. Um, So I'm an assistant professor of English. Um, My training is in writing studies. So I'm a teacher um, of writing. Most of my classes are about composition. How do we understand writing? How does writing work? How do we teach writing? Um, And within that larger field, I deal with um, queer pedagogies, queer theory and thought, and also um, my work centers on listening and exploring what it means to Think about listening as a compositional practice, as a rhetorical practice, and so a lot of the the work that I'm currently doing, and the way that I think about teaching, and even about civic action and in public stuff, is based on how do we, how, what can listening tell us and help us with when we think about all of those things?
1: Yeah, um, it's such an interesting and important question that you know I didn't realize how much it sort of applied to things except I feel like so often when we have a conversation you'll be able to be like yeah it's just like this comes down to like the question of listening or how we listen and that's like oh yeah you're right that's actually exactly what it has to do with so I feel like it's so relevant um and just I just think that people don't think to frame it in those ways Mm -hmm. um but uh, we can do a little plug for we have a great chapter in a book about um about about this and I've loved the conversations we've had in terms of um, what, it, you know, me coming from sort of like a loud activist in your face background, um, which often feels like a question about message and the speaker's point of view. But I think when we think about the question of listening in, in that practice of um, communicating is, is so important too.
2: Absolutely. Um, I want to make it clear maybe that um, when most people think of listening, they think of it from a communication studies, interpersonal communication perspective, where, um, for example, you'll get studies in turn-taking or that women listen in particular ways that are very different than the way men do. And when I say men and women, I mean masculine listening styles versus feminist listening styles. Deborah Tannen uh, is a really uh, important um, voice in that aspect of listening. But when I, the scholarship that animates my understanding of listening is based on listening as a rhetorical act. Um, It's a a way of inventing new text based on the texts that come at us. And I use text very broadly, um, video, uh, written, you know, oral text. So how do we allow the discourses or the texts that we receive to transform us? And based on that transformation, come up with new ways of responding or interacting with especially with people who don't already share our values. So, it's really putting that transformative process at the center and that um of of how we speak to others, how we write with others. Does right. that make sense? yeah.
1: It to- totally and I think that's like such an important clarification. Um I read Deborah Tan in my first year as like a comm studies undergrad and like was really put off by it even before I had like the language for like the gender binary I was like something feels off about this because she's she didn't really take the time to clarify the difference between masculine and feminine versus men women and that rubbed me the wrong way but can you so I love that distinction and I think it's important but can you give can you ground that in in an example like what does it mean to make it a text like and and respond to it in a transformative way like can you give an example of that
0: yeah
2: I can so one of the things that kind of um, rubs me a little bit wrong with some forms of activism is it is a demand to be heard without understanding the extent to which audience they're speaking to has interpreted or received those, those messages. Um, and so let's think of the most um, polar kind of things. Um, for me and my thinking right now, it's how do, um, Hillary supporters, if we take the current election, um, come to understand progressive social democratic perspective critiques of her. And, and so you'll get Bernie supporters who, who hate, um, Clinton's, um, militaristic, uh, kind of perspectives or her, um, deeply neoliberal embedded corporate policy practices um, um, or kind of when she advocated free college tuition it was for entrepreneurs which is not only an economically determined kind of social position but it's a particular sense of bootstrapping if you can pull yourself up to make business practices you know new businesses then then you're deserving of college education Um, and so we got to the way I think about listening playing out in this this tension between uh, social democrats who would support Bernie's notion of free education as a public right and Clinton's kind of um, the individual business entrepreneur who who goes it alone into the wood, you know, you know, mm-hmm. for um, is not this kind of yes, no, right, wrong, um, not the Bernie uh, kind of. Public education as a social right uh, is not figuring out how to do that better, how just to kind of say that argument in in more logical, more rational ways, but it's what is animating Clinton supporters and those who believe that entrepreneurs are most deserving of free college education. And From my perspective, when I listen to that, when I listen to those kind of, yeah, entrepreneurs should get the first right, it comes from a deep sense of, um, of tinkering and being able to be rewarded for innovative and creative and curious ideas. And that, to me, seems like a shared value with social democratic kind of college as a public right. And if the Bernie supporters or if those who think of college as a public right can start to develop arguments based on those shared values, those um, those Values of tinkering, of being able to think and be thoughtful, and produce something that is good for communities, and then try to shape their response to their the um you know i i need to i need to reset i need to reset i'm sorry um,
1: no you're good it's making perfect sense do you wanna do you wanna finish that thought or can I ask like a follow up question
2: Yes, yes, please do um I, I go on, go on
1: well, I mean no really I mean really that 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 makes a lot of sense that you're suggesting that i mean I just think if you you know if we think about listening via Facebook in terms of how people are listening slash reading and responding to things like i there is so much not there. It just seems like a lot of like selective from people are selectively yeah. selectively listening, I suppose, is maybe one way to put it. And I think to your example, um, you know, I am one of those, I am definitely more inclined to support Bernie than, or I was more inclined to support, uh, Bernie than Hillary. And certainly I'm further left than Bernie as well as most, most people know. Um, but yeah, I don't, it's like, I didn't I almost don't even want to find that commonality because there's something that feels really important about rejecting some of those ideas. So I, I feel very complicit in this sort of potential problem that you're describing. But I'm wondering, you know, another example that has been like infuriating me is the suggestion that people who don't want to vote for Hillary are doing so from a place of privilege and then they cite, you know, sort of all the somewhat progressive stances that Hillary and to the credit of social movements and and Bernie Sanders, might I say, have pushed her much further left on. Like she is further left today than she has been ever in her life. So I just want to give a shout out to all the people on the grassroots who have forced her into that. Okay. And can Uh, I I
0: stop
2: you right there? I see Hillary's progression to the left uh, in light of conversations that Bernie has proffered and has uh, advanced. And I think it's a real mark of Hillary Clinton to hear, to have listened to those arguments and to have said, this is something also worth fighting for. Now, there's two ways to look at that. She's being cynical and calculating, which I think is a very cynical um, kind of patriarchal way to demean her transformation. Or we could look at that as saying Hillary has been open to hearing what progressives want from her. And in her acceptance speech at the DNC, she absolutely included that in her platform, and she built a bond with Bernie on that point particularly. Yeah. So I absolutely think you're right that you know and I'm proud of progressives for pushing Hillary, but it's a it's a mark of um, a really smart listener I think to to be able to be open to that and then say yes, I want that to be a part of what I do as the leader of the United States. Does that make sense?
1: Completely. And and I think you're right like I it is hard for me to to not assume that it's just about strategy and getting elected but but perhaps it it is just a sign of her 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 openness um, The thing that is that I was going to reference that is so that I feel like isn't being heard on the sort of ardent Hillary supporter side is the fact that so many people on the left who are reluctant to elect her are doing so specifically because of her Uh, foreign policy stance and her hawkish warmongery nature and Mm -hmm. to suggest that our not wanting to support somebody who has been almost single-handedly responsible for killing hundreds of innocent brown people in the third world seems to just like not matter to, to people who who support her so so Fiercely under the guise of of um, progressive, you know, the marginalized people, particularly all these statuses that are like, if if you're not supporting Hillary, you you have privilege, and it's like, do you do? I feel like it's a clear example of people not considering the lives of third world people as important as as lives in the U.S. So. that's just something that i feel like is people are refusing to hear it's like okay i understand that she's going further left sort of domestically but she's still celebrating you know hawkishly defending israel fighting terrorism with drones like all these things that if you're if you're on the left are not exciting statements
2: <laughs> and i agree with you i uh, also i think it is a moral failure of the Obama administration to use drones mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, I think it, it would be a moral failing of the Clinton administration to continue that mm-hmm. and when mm-hmm. she says that she Israel is our closest ally or I it, that's not a direct quotation but when she affirmed the relationship with Israel um, and didn't mention Palestinians mm-hmm. and the the ways they suffer at the hands of our ally mm-hmm it was very frustrating. And What I think this illuminates for me is how complicated and delicious, actually, listening is because it is absolutely not a one-way direction. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: That these things happen uh, at the same time and in the interaction with individuals, there are moments when we can ask each other to be accountable for the things that we have just said or that they have just said. So, for example if someone says I'm pro Clinton and I'm going to vote for her and then you come back and say, how do you account for her international terrorism?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I, I think that we can absolutely use those words.
1: Totally.
2: Then they have to confront the question that's been asked. They have to account for that. Um, and when I think of a candidate like Hillary. And I'm not, I'm not like trying to say, justify my own way of voting for Hillary Clinton this cycle. What gives me a a sense of possibility is that if she can transform on student loans um, and, and open herself up to domestic issues that Bernie has advocated and Elizabeth Warren advocates, there isn't, already a demonstration that she's willing to kind of engage those conversations. And so we need people who will give her something to listen to. So listening is not the absence of text. It's the way in which we respond and engage with each other that's so crucial. And so if someone comes at you and says, you voted for, for Bernie Sanders, How you know what a privileged thing, and you respond to that and say... For me, it, it's not an issue of privilege. It's an issue of not wanting to support an international terrorist from the, mm-hmm. you know, that position. Okay. You've got to attune yourself very carefully to how they respond to your objection. And if they refuse to give you that, if they refuse to kind of engage what that means for you politically and them politically as a result... Then we got to figure out different strategies. Maybe some some disarticulation strategies. Listening um, that, that that when people don't agree to hear each other, listen to each other, then we have to start developing ways to um, disengage. And this is what is is really awesome in Facebook discussions because that disengagement then can be made public mm-hmm. for future audiences. And so one of the things that I'm working through is try to articulate a framework of listening that goes beyond the the interaction, the actual back and forth. How do we enter into a listening context and how we leave a situation that is no longer being productive, I think is also concerns for listening studies and how we think about listening. Does that make sense?
1: Totally. Um... And, so,
2: and so I think it is within our rights as civil rights activists, as social progressives, to make a request to be heard and to be listened to and to shape, the before we get into issues that are really important to us, to spend time shaping how we are going to engage each other. And it's almost like setting the terms of the interaction, but it's important that we can demand listening. We can demand that others uh, hold on and be accountable for what they're hearing from us.
1: Yeah. Um Absolutely. I mean, I think another very clear example of not of not listening is when you know you have you have Black Lives Matter, and then you have people on the other side say, "No, no, all lives matter." But then those same people, you know, you see who 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 for some reason hear Black Lives Matter and make assume that that means nobody else's lives matter to these people. But then yep. they also come back with the Blue Lives Matter, which clearly demonstrates that they, they don't just think Blue Lives Matter, but they're using that same rhetoric that yes. they just foreclosed the possibility of being acceptable from the sort of other side. Yes. Um, so you see a lot of, you know, that's obviously an example of, of um, not listening uh, from, from All Lives Matter folks. And so
2: I, I love that illustration um, because it is a tense moment when those of us who already believe Black Lives Matter is such a crucial um, social movement, social activist um, kind of response to grave injustice. Uh, And that what that movement is asking for is an understanding of meaningful difference. Mm -hmm. And people who then try to silence that by saying all lives matter is they've are really they demonstrated that they're not in a position to kind of understand what Black Lives Matter means. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I think, when you're up against that kind of not listening, that All Lives Matter is a silencing move that shuts down discourse, that refuses to be open to the discourses of Black Lives Matter, I think it's an instructive moment for Black Lives Matter uh, people uh, advocates and supporters to try to understand what it is about Black Lives Matter that is so unthinkable to the All Lives Matter people and develop lines of questioning in the interaction of All Lives Matter people to try to figure out what is, where's the threat? Where's the threat in Black Lives Matter? Where is it... In the discourse of Black Lives Matter, that makes it difficult for that person, all lives matter person, to understand. And so rather than say you're just ignorant, or rather than say you need to just read these 10 books by Angela Davis and Bell Hooks and mm-hmm. you know, Cornell West, you know, rather than do that, to provide them a space to articulate where what their beliefs are. What their feelings, what their values are, so that you can then hear that differently and maybe come up with different language about Black Lives Matter that's not just based in uh, in in the discourses that are already circulating.
0: Does that make sense?
1: It definitely does. But I have a question about who the you in this in this scenario is because um, Melody and I have talked on here before about uh, sort of the idea of respectability politics and. Uh, you know, um, really exactly what we're talking about, this idea of approaching the sort of other side um, with patience and education and, you know, actually giving them time to express their opinions and feelings. And honestly, I don't think that's the responsibility of black people to listen to um, racist, oppressive, vitriolic hatred. Like, I don't think that 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 any marginalized person needs to listen to their oppressor's point of view. Um, so I think that this is really a question of what allies can and, and should do. I, I don't know, I guess, you know, I don't know that Black Lives Matter folks need to really hear um that that black people in the black lives matter movement need to sit there and be patient and kind and respectful to racism um because i think they know what i think they know that what racism you know they, they obviously know what racism is so i'm curious about your thoughts on that about like who who is responsible for this kind of listening what is this listening is it just like studying up on, you know, if, if we take this to like, well, I won't go there, but is it, is it, you know, sort of really actually having conversations with people who are going to say that you are not a human being like worthy of life, or is it reading Facebook posts? You know, what does this look like? Who, who's responsible for holding in, in the case of black lives matter discussions like racism?
2: I think that is a very challenging question. And I want to make very clear that I'm not advocating, uh, for example, Black Lives Matter advocates or um, people who believe in science Mm -hmm. (laughs) to sit silently and sit quietly while vicious things come their way. Um, When I hear um, people who deny climate change and environmental degradation, I absolutely, uh, think that that's vicious language um, mm-hmm. directed at a different kind of uh, concept or idea um, directed at the earth and animals and non-human creatures and beings. Um, and, in black lives matter. Well, it seems that a listening project would require those advocates to listen to hurtful, hateful things. And in a way I, Am asking for a patience that seems insurmountable or impossible at a particular moment, and that's why I think listening to texts that exist rather than in a purely communication verbal that you know um, me and you are having a conversation. It could be you could listen to lots of different things, but in the moment when um, someone is coming at you. Listening is not the absence of your right to speak. Listening is not the absence of your um, ability to say, "Whoa, we need to take a break. Mm-hmm. We, need to, you know, we need. I, I, we need to process." Um, and I think it would be a misunderstanding of listening's potential if uh, listening was equated with silence, textual, verbal. Mm-hmm. Uh, visual silence. That's not what I think the project is after or that's not what I'm trying to suggest. What I am asking for is not necessarily an affirmation of the viciousness, but allowing a space for you to consider or to listen to what might be underneath that viciousness and allowing that to frame our responses. Um, and that might be ask us to put the the requests we're making on hold for a moment to respond to whatever it is is keeping someone closed from hearing Mm -hmm. our requests. And so I see in a lot of um, progressive politics uh, a demand to be heard, but listening asks us to consider why is it that this person is unable to hear us in the first place? And then to think about our strategies and how they have to change in light of that insight. Does that make
1: sense? Yes, but I feel like this is where we often, no, you didn't dodge it at all. I just feel like this point you're making is often where we disagree. Um, I think, uh, I keep thinking of this quote, I think it was MLK. I hate, I don't wanna be the person who misattributes an MLK quote, but I'm almost positive it is. (laughs) I think he said, um, a riot is the language of the unheard and so you know i've i've had countless discussions with my students friends family members about you know why w- why would they riot in ferguson and and destroy you know local businesses and and you know they're they're not going to change any minds by rioting and i like will you know defend till the death that it is not up to I guess one thing that I feel like is missing from the, from this discussion and this analysis is like affect and just raw emotion. Okay. And it is not the job of people who are violence every single day, who are losing brothers, sisters, fathers, et cetera, et cetera, on a daily basis. It is not their job to make their, um, their hurt palatable or hearable to oppressors, in my opinion. So, you know, when you talk about strategizing, I guess this is again, a question of sort of um, who, who, who the people are who should be strategic and may, and or, or maybe if it can be both and, you know, can we have time for language that is not going to be palatable to oppressors? And can we also have time for strategy? Um, I'm curious about your sort of thoughts
2: on that. Um, I think it's important. Yes. Awesome. I, this is why I love talking with you about um, things like this because you ask really challenging questions to the projects that, <laughs> that, that I believe are important. Um, I think I have to go back and, and reiterate that it's not just the social justice advocate that has to listen. Mm-hmm. Those who are going to assert a judgment have to be open or not open. If they're going to meaningfully engage a project uh, that is animated through listening's values of trying to understand and trying to adapt strategies based on what's actually coming at them, if someone is going to animate their project like that, any judgment that gets weight, or, or advanced or criticism has to consider the limitations of that judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's really crucial. So if you get a student who says something like, no one's minds are ever going to be changed through, through violent protest or through rioting, okay, what's animating that assuredness? Mm -hmm. Or why do you think people would be rioting right now? Or what reasons would you have to suggest that this might be a useful project? Um, And it takes a really careful, kind teacher to be able to slow the classroom learning time way down to help students attempt to understand what it is that makes this feel right for those rioters, mm-hmm. makes this the option in this moment for rioters, um, if, if that's our illustration. And ultimately, through that work, learn how to hear rage and anger better, not as an attack on the person, but coming with a history of oppression or a history of, of not knowing necessarily or not having the right words for the right person at the right moment. Some, you know, we're fallible. Um, But to hear and to explore what it is that's driving uh, anger, uh, rage, um, the call to violence, that's a problem or that's a a concern. And that's a responsibility of everyone. And I, I, I think in our social justice advocacy, we have to not just, Focus on our own rage and our own violence, which is just in many, many ways, and often it's very just. But we're not the only people who are raging and who are angry and who mm-hmm. are. And when we attempt to f- understand that, so that we can then be transformed by that, I think we're in a listening project.
1: Yeah, I um, thank you. I think that's a, I think that's a great response because I think so often the onus falls on the the lefty protesters to to make themselves you know sound more polite but i think what your response is saying is well okay so your whole your whole sort of thesis on listening is that it's it's not just their response you know whatever the action is the 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 listening reaction has to be has to go both ways so that the folks who are saying a riot, you know. A riot will never change anybody's minds. You're saying, "Well, that's their opportunity to listen differently."
2: Absolutely. Oh, that's absolutely it. There are always opportunities to listen differently, and then on the basis of what you hear and how you hear differently, making trans, you transforming your texts, transforming your sources. Um, I think that's that's the heart of what I it is. I'm trying to think through. Um, can we go back, I, I mentioned, can we go back to like online like fighting with the uh you know Bobby Moynihan's drunk uncle on
1: uh, <laughs> oh, I loved uh, yeah, drunk uncle is a sad and great character um right yeah, no, I think a lot of a lot of us would love to hear your opinion on online fighting because it's it's rough, especially because I think a lot of allies have been called to to engage with those things as an act of allyship, like actually try to engage this as, as a form of education, use your white privilege to like engage in conversations that are going to be too emotional for, for black folks or whatever the sort of situation may be. So yeah, please let talk more about online spacing fighting. I mean, <laughs> well,
2: I would call it online listening rather than online fighting.
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but,
2: but I don't mean to dismiss the fact that online fighting actually happens, but mm-hmm. uh, um. Recently in my life, uh, my partner got into a um, heated, heated um, tr- "Hillary is just as evil as Donald Trump" uh, kind of debate, and so mm-hmm. this is the kind of thing that keeps he and I up at night. <laughs> <And I was laughs> like, oh, you know, sh- they're so wrong, oh, oh. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some affect of joy in say, like trying to uh, shout down and tell someone just how wrong they are sometimes.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but that's what we see here in these kind of Facebook fight conversations is someone saying desperately, I wish I could reach that person, but I don't know how. And so listening, I think provides kind of an, uh, an alternate way of getting at these tensions. And so one of the things that I think we can do on Facebook is be verbal and write statements. Like I want to, us to, whatever comments happen, to be understood in the spirit of exploration or openness. Setting that frame, that initial frame, that I am trying to understand and I seek understanding from you is really, really crucial. Because oftentimes what we'll see on Facebook is someone will post an incendiary article, um, and, you know, the 21 worst lies of Donald Trump. Okay, that's kind of triggering for Trumpers, you know, people, that, that that's, that's really triggering. Triggering It puts people on the defensive um, who are already predisposed to believe their candidate is the, va- the valid choice. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when you come at whether or not Trump is actually a liar, when you come at the sureness of him as a liar, you're closing off the affective kind of defensiveness that people have when they just hear that. And a lot of times our response is, well, he is a liar. And here's why he's a liar. So it's more rationality, more logic, more I'm right. So I think initially framing, we're going to try to understand each other. We're going to open, and uh, as as the moderator of my own Facebook wall, I have the right to ask for those things. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Then you try to get at what it is that's really at the heart of the, the meaningful differences. And sometimes those differences can't be bridged. But in the back and forth through the 50 posts that you make, um, paying attention to the ways in which both yourself and the others are trying to make their points make sense to them. Mm -hmm. uh, That's a little clunky. But if the assertion is Trump's a liar, Trump's not a liar, for example, and all you're doing is speaking facts at each other, then you're missing something. What you should be doing is trying to understand what's making that assertion meaningful for the other people, and sometimes it's facts, and sometimes it's it's faith, sometimes it's belief, sometimes it's uh, it's a, a value system that is really difficult to understand and process. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, rather than going to the main claims that are often kind of triggering defensive postures, we read in the post. What, why are they invested in this position? We look for and explore in that post what values or com- sense of community is, is making this post, this argument, so meaningful for them.
1: And we could ask about
2: that. What, what, what values do you think are operating here? What, how does this work for a, a democracy when we have our leader functioning a, a, as a liar like Trump is? You know, you could ask and mm-hmm. invent these kind of modes of inquiry with each other in a Facebook space, that um, allows us to get at the, the, the feelings, the values, the beliefs, the non-rational things that animate our, our, our stuff. Does it make sense?
1: Yeah, totally. So, I mean, I think... Um,
2: now, there's one more step on that, uh, to okay. this. When there's an impasse, as inevitably there may be. Right. Uh, I'm sorry for that phrase, inevitably maybe. Um, <laughs> when there's an impasse, what's beautiful about Facebook and online listening for me is that um, we can articulate and justify why we choose to disengage. And I think the, this is what, what, what we so fail, often fail to do in moments of heated impasses where you're feeling really angry and you, you're starting to sh- feel contempt for another person. We just stop talking and we just stop engaging. Mm-hmm. I think in online, a really important strategy would be to say, I'm having a difficult time listening to this for these reasons, or because I'm feeling X, Y, and Z, I need time to process this, and I promise to return. Or, I don't feel heard by you. I think that you're engaging in an active misreading, or I see you're not trying to understand where I'm coming from, so I'm going to invite you to think differently, and then come back in 48 hours and demonstrate that you get where I'm coming from. You can make these requests. Listening is not about giving up agency or giving up things, but it's asking us to be with each other differently.
1: Does it make sense? Totally. And
2: and the final thing that makes this so sexy to me is if it's done in a public space, it becomes a form of public pedagogy that those who lurk and are watching this and who are paying attention to the thread, but without acting, or like participating in it, they're seeing you or the listener change the dynamics of social inter- interaction, change the way that you approach this, this meaningful difference in the other who pisses us off, who makes us so angry, and it starts to become instructive. Here's how I demonstrate my ability to listen. Others are invited to do the same. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, um, and I, f- I feel like there, you know I've I've witnessed this and occasionally been a part of it. I don't do I don't do a ton of thread thread debating. I I sort of think I should do more, given that I I do think it is exactly everything you're saying: an opportunity for education, a way to be an ally in certain situations, etc. Um, so I've been in a few of these of these sort of debates and conversations, but I've also lurked and witnessed a lot of them are. Um, My partner is uh it's been both a a good form of his allyship and also his um distraction from his dissertation to um engage in a lot of these um regarding uh black lives matter stuff in particular he was really uh stepping up um are you still with me timothy i I just heard a noise
0: oh no yeah okay
1: cool um but you know he he and others have, have done sort of exactly what you're saying, um, describing describing the reason for walking away and actually at times finding that people want to come back to it. I was invited to be a part of a conversation. Um, a friend of mine who is a black man sort of tagged me on a conversation that was happening on his wall and was like, hey, do you maybe want to jump in here? Because, you know, he, he didn't want to deal with it, understandably, um, you know, of a white woman sort of professing a sort of colorblind framework of the world and uh, we a lot you know there was a lot of discussion a lot of folks jumping in and then it sort of simmered down and people some did what you said explained why they were walking away from that some it was just you know that was the threat of the day and then it was the next day and they forgot about it or whatever but then within about three days later um Alton Sterling and Philando Castile it was it was days before the Alton Sterling and Philando Castile shootings. And so I jumped back on the thread and I was like, I just want to reopen this and talk about this in relation to this idea that we somehow live in a colorblind world. And it was, it was, it was, um, it felt generative to have a space to go back to that had been opened up sort of outside of the context of, I mean, there's police shootings all the time, but outside of the sort of, in really intense week of news about, about the cop shootings. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've witnessed exactly what you're describing and I, and I think you're right. Um, and I think it's a really good case for not being dismissive about, you know, I think there's a lot of like, Oh, trolls on the internet. Oh, Facebook fights, like people just roll their eyes. But I, I think you're right. I think it has a lot of, um, potential to be transformative in the ways that you're describing could be really useful.
2: And. Thank you. I think so too. And and thank you for kind of witnessing that this this practice can be generative and transformative. Um, and but I think it's important that we frame these things in the language of listening, because it asks us to be more receptive, more mm-hmm. to each other. If we frame and it and it invites not just rational fact building but it invites a consideration for the feelings that get animated for the beliefs that get uh, um, made meaningful in conversations um, in ways that a rational approach to issues that are based in kind of speak, 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 put more, put more, put more. Uh, Listening gets us more into realms of understanding I think um, and and feeling and and belief. Um, So I that's, and, and figuring out how all this works and how it can work is, it's become something of an obsession to me.
1: Yeah. yeah. Is this, is the sort of rejection of rationality one way you would describe this idea of queer listening that I know you think through a lot?
2: Yeah. Um,
1: Define I, that for us. How do you explain what is, what is queer listening?
2: Well, and, uh, I'm still researching and trying to pinpoint and figure out what it means to uh, what it means when queers listen, how that looks like. And what is it that um, we can do to listening to queer it up to make it strange for people? Um,
1: Can I pause you there just for like a little sort of one on one on the difference between that? So there's and I'm just going to reiterate what you're saying. So there is the idea of queer people, LGBTQ plus people list like listening and then there's this idea of queer as a verb which we use in academia and also activist communities and on the streets and etc where you as you said to to make strange or to trouble um something so using queer as a tool so i just wanted to sort of reiterate the, dif- the difference between those so continue
2: okay thank you that's a really good distinction and i appreciate the um, opportunity that you took to clarify um, so I'm really interested in um, queer listening as a form of stylized disengagement um, or a stylized kind of interaction. So uh, some research I'm currently working on is um, reading and throwing shade. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh,
2: And I'm trying to think through what does it mean for these to be queer listening practices. One of the things I'm kind of working towards is that shade in reading um, functions as a form of receptivity, open, radical receptivity, to kind of acknowledge something funky about someone else and invite them to be different in in, in the most playfully serious way. And so when you get in a good read and everyone laughs, that you have received something about the person you're about to read, and you've decided to create some sort of uh, response to that. And I think attached to that is a, an invitation to do differently and be better. And so the, this kind of, it's not just a, um, a violent insult or a playful insult. There's attached to this a kind of uh, hope or a, a thing that they will be different. Um, but it's done in this kind of playful uh, way, and the person who's throwing shade, for example, this this um, is has to attune their bodies and attune themselves to hearing laughter and hearing hurt in very different ways. So it becomes this kind of in-group kind of rhetorical exchange that prepares them for a larger, more threatening world beyond that in-group, hmm. uh, and so. Um, particular cultural practices, uh, like throwing shade and reading, I think rely on this production-reception play that um, that, that can, they can they be very adept at. And so that's kind of one of the things that listening does. It, 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 it collapses the, the the tensions between re- production or speech. I got to get this text out so I can be heard, and reception. I'm taking in all the information that I can. So it's this kind of blurring that, that space between um, reception and production. Mm-hmm. And I think reading um, and shade throwing are, are really interesting uh, practices that are unique specifically to um, the African American gay community. Mm-hmm. So there's the history in people of color using uh, shade and reading that I think when white people throw shade or throw, you know, try to read someone, that they've got to be aware that that history comes from somewhere. Totally. Um, and I think it's a mark of heteronormativity and white privilege that white queers who throw shade and read don't know that history of the African-American cultural practice. Uh, I, I think that's really troubling to me. And I, so part of my work is to, to say, hey, this this queer practice, and I'm not the only one to kind of think through this uh, as a queer practice, um, but I think it's really interesting to, to talk about shade and reading as a form of stylized listening where you um, engage and disengage in all these kind of quick ways, and I'm still parsing that out and thinking through what that means. Um, so that's what happens when queers listen, right? Um, yeah. they, that They go into this space and time where they have to quickly make adjustments to whatever it is they're seeing or hearing and then be able to throw it back as fast as possible. So there's this temporal thing. And, can, I, can
1: I just jump in really quick? I, I'm, I, love, I, I love that this is what you're thinking through and I think it's super, super interesting. And it, just the, this, this entire time that you've been talking, I've just mm-hmm. been thinking about all these sort of nonverbal body and facial expressions that, when I think about people throwing shade, you know, it's, it's a lot of like black queer people and POC queer people that um, yep. come to mind and just how, amazing some of these nonverbals are and just this idea of active listening slash communicating with the body is like a really cool thing to think about too and with the face and expression so anyway that's just because I have every like everything you said I was like okay I can envision this and this and this like this drag queen did this Titus on Kimmy Schmidt did that you know all these different all these different things so that's that's cool
2: and I think what's really cool that uh, queering listening can help us think differently about listening as an embodied practice as well. And you're absolutely right with those kind of like the um, the eye roll, the snap. Mm-hmm. Uh, e. Patrick Johnson has a beautiful essay from uh, quite a while ago about uh, the snap. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's it's really lovely. Um, cool. So one of the projects is what happens when queers listen. Uh, queering listening is, is a different kind of intellectual project because... Um, it's much more theoretical in my brain and listening as a rhetorical act, at least the scholars who have taken it up have um, not really done well with understanding the impacts time and space have on queer bodies. So, and I'm speaking of like Halberstam's and a queer time and place. Um, All the other kind of queer text, uh, time binds, uh, feeling backwards, Mm -hmm. you know, those kind of brilliant temporal queer texts. Um, but what listening studies in rhetoric and composition has, uh, has um, assumed, and here's the case I'm trying to make and think through, is that time and space don't need to be troubled, and there's this kind of normative time in space that operates under listening.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: so when I, when I think about queering listening um, from a, a theoretical disciplinary perspective, trying to make listening strange, I think a location for that is to mess up how time and space hmm. impact the our receptive productive processes.
1: Yeah, totally. And I mean, on, I mean, an online makes sense for that because it's not it's not a face to face, same time conversation. So I think that makes sense. That that's one of the things that you would be thinking through with that.
2: Yeah, and um, I think that queer bodies. Uh, it's so it's so fascinating to think about the uh, just the body's position within this kind of framework. Um, I'm obsessed with how we receive things um, and how that process looks and functions and I think that when we talk about how we take things into our bodies and allow ourselves to be transformed by that um, it's it's really fascinating to think through that
0: yeah.
1: And,
2: and I don't have a whole lot of answers, but this is the stuff that I'm kind of slogging through, uh, both as a human being who listens and cares deeply about being transformed by the presence of others, uh-huh, and okay. as a as a professional.
1: Yeah, I um, it's it's fascinating, and like I said, I've always loved talking through this stuff with you. And it sounds like I, you you've expressed today some ideas that that I hadn't heard before. That I'm super excited to to read at some point. From you, um, and keep talking through. I wonder also if um, th- bringing in a disability, a critical disability, crip theory, might be an interesting route, particularly as it overlaps with queer th- studies, um, since listening is on. Pa- you know, if you just hear that word listening, it, it becomes a, this idea of hearing in a particular way, and and thinking if we're thinking about bodies and we're thinking about access and and what it means on different bodies i wonder if uh thinking through you know reading crypt theory accounts of deaf listening um you yeah. know that that might be another another avenue to 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 bring in
2: and i i totally affirm that is an interesting project i think there are it needs to be accounted for it absolutely does how that metaphor or the how that that concept of listening is already mm-hmm. marked as um, an oral, a-u-r-l, kind of um, sonic experience that comes through the ear uh, that carries vibrations and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't want to, like, bracket that unfairly, but the listening that I'm after is uh, about invention and about uh, mm-hmm. production. And, and mm-hmm. so it's not the sonic notion of listening that is is its most popular notion, mm-hmm. but those metaphors of listening are absolutely infused with um, abled bodies, right? And but that's so-
1: exactly my point. That's why I think like crypt theory might actually be really useful for you because you're saying listening doesn't just need to be this sort of thing that presumes a type of ability um, or that relies on a type of uh, physical ability. You know, I think actually it would just bolster sort of what, what you're exactly saying. Um, so, yeah, so I wasn't trying to say we need to, you know, the, it was, it was less of like, I'm going to make a disability critique about you and more like, I actually think crypt theory might be, um, sort of part of exactly what, what you're doing. Um, and I can't totally speak to that. It was just something that popped in my head, but yeah. So.
2: I mean, that's, that's really helpful. Um, and I thank you for clarifying that. That makes me, that helps me understand uh, where you're coming from, though I didn't necessarily hear the. Hear critique, uh, being way too, I I heard it as an offer. So that
1: was, okay, cool. good, Good. Cool. Well, I can't, I can't wait to, um, like I said, to hear more. I, I know you're gonna hopefully turn this into a brilliant book or a brilliant series of articles, which I know you've already, um, written some about, but, um, it's such a cool and important topic. And, uh, I'm so glad that you, uh, wanted to share with us today more on it. Any last words on that before we transition into uh, our RWL that I'd love to invite you to this week?
2: Hey, um, I really appreciate uh, given being given the space to discuss these ideas. Um, I'm really open to the kind of challenges that y- you've um, asked me to consider um, as I think through this. I, I I think there's lots of really good opportunities for continued discussion about a, a listening project based on transformation and understanding versus the kind of challenges that come from social movement rhetorics that are like, yes, we got to do this, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I love that you've been a consistent force of either directly or haunting in the back of my brain. <laughs> I really appreciate that. So
1: I love, um, I love that. I, I hope that I can just be like, the little angel on your, devil on your shoulder being like, but what about the protest in the street? Uh, I think you are,
2: and you will always be that for me. (laughs) Perfect.
1: Love it. (laughs) Um, Great. Well, um, I love talking about this, but I also just love talking about, we we talk about TV a lot and music, so I would, and books. So what is your RWL of the week? What are you reading this week, watching this week, and listening to?
2: Okay, reading. I'm. I just finished, and I know that's not like, not necessarily how we play the game, but I just feel like finished Gail Solomon's Assuming a Body, mm-hmm. um, and it, it's really lovely and challenging, and I have to read it again. So I'm reading that again this week. Be great. <laughs> um, I am. Um, are watching. Um, when I'm not with my boyfriend, I'm watching The West Wing. Okay. I've never seen it and it's all on Netflix. Uh but when I'm with him, he and I are watching Stranger Things.
1: I haven't what's
2: that about? Oh gosh. It's so good because Is that the
1: Winona Ryder thing? Yes. Oh, uh, okay.
2: Oh, she's so good in it. She's so good in it.
1: Is and it I, scary?
2: It is sometimes unsettling.
1: Okay. I'm afraid I'm gonna get too scared.
2: You probably may, knowing what yeah. I know about you, but I, I yeah. don't see easily, so I'm not the good
1: Right, Judge. I know. No, you watch like horror movies, so uh, no, I can't. No.
2: Yeah. Um so the cool thing about it is how eighties it is. It's it's oh. like thoroughly eighties and it I don't go for nostalgia. I think that there's there's lots of problems with discourses of nostalgia and all these remakes. But this um I, I'm really interested in shows that immerse you in a culture and a life. Like Penny Dreadful is completely immersive in an era. Um I think stranger things hits this beautiful 80s thing cool. that's
0: yeah
1: cool well i love winona but i i probably won't watch it because of scary things but um but cool i'm glad it's good I'm, I'm glad for her because uh she had a lull yes
2: so it's good she's back and yeah. uh, listening um i'm listening to uh a norwegian singer Anna a oh yeah uh, yeah oh, yeah you know her i do uh, i she has the song and while i was listening to it every time i listen to this song i think of you actually um because you're my favorite marxist
1: Mm
2: -hmm. we're marxist um do you still adopt that identification oh yeah okay yeah i figured i i I listened to the podcast i just (laughs) wanted to double check um she has a song called one Mm -hmm. and um it's so like amps me up and it's so beautiful because it's about uh unity and in uh, that not the cheesy kind of like oh let's all get together um but the it ends with like revolution now it's so that's
1: awesome that's amazing i'll have to check that out yeah i haven't listened to her in a while
2: um i i i just love her i also love kind of like swedish scandinavian norwegian kind of female singers mm-hmm. i kind of like fallen into that gap um so um agnes obel is, is someone that's really cool right
1: now. Okay. I don't know that person, but cool. So that's
2: two. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> no, that's allowed. You're allowed. I mean. <laughs> um, Cool. That's a good list. Um, I am reading, uh, I finished Maggie Nelson's Bluets. Have you read Maggie Nelson yet? No, I have not. Oh, you have to read. You're going to love the Argonauts. Um, I promise you you're going to love the Argonauts. Um, sure. Bluets, you'll probably also really love. I bet you'll like them even more than than I do. <laughs> they're they're wonderful. They're beautiful. I just have some mild critiques of them that you might not as much. I don't know. Anyway, read them we'll we'll discuss another time. So I just finished Bluets, but mostly I'm reading um uh stuff for my syllabi because I'm in the midst of syllabi planning and I'm was currently planning my um gender sex and film syllabus, so reading uh academic essays about film um have is sort of what I've been spending my week doing. Um, I'm watching, um, I'll be curious to hear your reaction to this. Uh, I'm also teaching a gender race and pop, uh, gender race and media class. And I want to do a big unit on reality TV, uh, Ugh. partly because I have become both like a critical academic feminist, like interrogator of, and also a fan of uh, the Kardashians and the Bachelor slash Bachelorette franchise. Uh. Um, I'm and the Bachelorette is going on now. Next week is the finale, so we get to see who she picks as her bachelor. Um, I'm truly fascinated in this world. I'm a little late on the train. I mean, I went to school with you know Laurie Let. I study you know partly studied under Laurie Lett, who's a big reality TV person. So I know this is not new for academia to be interested in this, at least media studies folks. But um, it's the first time I'm actually watching these things sort of as a fan. And I have to say, I'm like really hooked on The Bachelorette. It's been very fascinating this summer. Do you watch any of that stuff?
2: Um, I have difficulties with shows that allow and take pleasure and foster in artificial (laughs) ways self-destructive um goings-on and yeah and so i find that i love it when it happens in like a john waters movie because that's that's (laughs) queer and lovely but i i have real problems with um that and like the real housewives stuff when people shout and for um uh, like a performance without really listening to each other, that really I, I, that upsets me in, in ways that I don't like to be upset by my television. <laughs>
1: <laughs> totally, I I would have to say that there is like a difference between Real Housewives and some of the. Well, no, I mean they like to they like to make drama on The Bachelor and Bachelorette, but the Kardashians aren't that aren't really that drama. They're kind of like they're actually kind of boring. But anyway, that's a whole nother a whole nother discussion. But that's what I've been watching. Um I'm stoked to find out who JoJo the Bachelorette picks next week. Um (laughs) um, and listening to nothing particularly brand new. I have a um a work playlist on Spotify and I just added um I heard Sharon Van Etten in a store and I was like, oh yeah, I haven't listened to her in a while. I'm gonna add her um, to my playlist my work playlist. So Sharon Van Etten's back Back in the in the rotation
2: um i love the song is it is it snakes oh.
1: the one that i heard in the store was every time the sun comes up from the newer album okay
2: i um, she has a song uh, i think it's called rattlesnakes or something uh, that is just so
0: powerful
1: yeah
0: check it oh, out. That's
1: so cool yeah all right well thank you timothy so much um this was so great. It's always great to talk to you, and I'm super glad that um, we finally got to have you on an episode.
2: I hope that it, thank you very much. I hope that what uh, we've talked about today is generative and, and and maybe even provocative. Or that if anyone has any questions or concerns, I'd love to I'd love to hear them and listen to. People's thoughts actually a lot. That's yeah, really totally.
1: Helpful. I'll make sure that I um I'll tag you when I post it on Facebook, and I'll uh put your you can give me whatever contact info you'd you'd want to put publicly, and I can put that on our website. Um, so yeah, get in touch with Timothy. Okay, um, well, thanks so much. Uh,
0: that's it. Take care.
1: Thanks again to Timothy, and with that, WTF power.